The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my sermon for you today is Defeating Doubt. We're going to talk about doubt and how to overcome bouts with doubt. It's something that I think is common in the life of just about every believer. But I want to set things up like this. You know how there are, there are names that we have, over time, come to associate with certain things. For instance, if I say the name Michael Jordan, you probably think of basketball, right? If I say the name Tiger Woods, you think of golf. If I say the name, I don't know, Joanna Gaines, you think of home decorating, magnolia, and all that stuff. And if I say the name Thomas from the Bible, you immediately think of doubt. We've even given him a nickname because of his penchant for doubting. We call him what? Doubting Thomas. Now, as far as nicknames go, that one's not that complimentary. You know, that's, it's a pretty rough one. And to be honest, I feel like we, Thomas may have gotten a bad rap. I mean, uh, sure, he was a bit of a pessimist. He was melancholy. And in the few instances where he kind of comes to the, the limelight or to the forefront on the pages of Scripture, usually it's to express concern or doubt or paint a negative picture of circumstances. And so he had his, his bouts with doubt. But he, he also was a man of faith and courage. And the Bible records several instances where he demonstrated great faith. I mean, how would you like to be forever linked with your greatest weakness? You know, Peter, he showed a penchant for fear, but we don't call him Peter the pansy, you know. Moses had a stuttering problem, but we don't call him mumbling Moses. No, it's just Thomas that got linked to his, his, his weakness. The truth is, doubting Thomas could just as easily have been dubbed Honest Thomas, the name Thomas, it's also referred to as Didymus in the Bible, and it means twin. Did you know that? Thomas was a twin. Yet, surprisingly, we're never told who his twin was. The identity of his twin brother is left a mystery on the pages of Scripture. But perhaps it's all good, because at the end of the day, I think I know who it might be. Me. And maybe it's you, too. You see, we all share Thomas's weakness for struggling with fears and doubts. And, and that's why I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for his honesty. He was, after all, just voicing the same concerns that the others had, but they were too afraid to give voice to. And so by looking at how Thomas handled his doubts, we're going to learn how to handle our own. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into our text, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 20. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. That sets the stage for everywhere we're going to be going with things this morning. But notice how John places this event on the first day of the week. That's a literary cue. He's, he's telling us that these events happen on the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. This is Easter Sunday. But that happened in the morning, and now this is the evening. The day began before the sun even had cracked the horizon with Mary and the women going to the tomb. They went with heaviness in their hearts and, and, and spices in their hands. They were there to embalm the Lord's dead body. But when they got close, they got the shock of their lives because the stone had been rolled away. Mary wrongly concluded that Jesus' body had been stolen by grave robbers, and so she turns and runs away, and on her way back to tell the disciples, she bumps into Peter and John, who were making their own way to the tomb that first Easter morning. And she tells them about her experience, and they come running, and they step into the tomb and see the linen clothes lying there, but Jesus is gone, and they reach the conclusion that he had risen from the dead, and, and they go back to tell the other disciples, and, and now Mary returns, and she has a personal encounter with the risen Lord herself. And so all of that happened in the morning. And now we find the disciples all gathered together. It's later that evening. They're behind closed doors. The windows are shuttered. The doors are locked. They're still afraid of what the Jewish leaders are going to do to them. And they're breaking it down. And you can, you can imagine all of the, the women talking excitedly over one another. And, and Peter and John trying to break in with their own version of events and what they had encountered at the empty tomb that morning. And the rest of the ten are just standing there and they're going back and forth and they're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together, but they're struggling. Why? Because none of them were expecting a resurrection. It was the last thing on any of their minds, despite the fact that Jesus had told them repeatedly that he was going to be crucified and then on the third day rise from the dead. And so finally, Jesus then shows up in the midst. Now, if they were scared before Jesus showed up, they were doubly scared once he showed up into their midst, which is probably why the first thing Jesus said was, peace, be still. In other words, calm down, guys, it's me. And now they're like, ah. And then he pulls up his sleeves and he reveals to them the scars where the nails had been driven through his wrists, and he shows them in his side where the soldier had taken the spear and thrust it into his side. And it was at that moment that they realized it was Jesus, and their fears gave way to joyous faith. And so Jesus says to them again, peace be with you. And then he says something else. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them. Now, this represents a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus had made a couple of days prior. You'll recall in John's gospel how Jesus shared what would be the final meal with his disciples. We know it as the, the Last Supper. 
And there in an upper room, he began to share this discourse. It's known as the upper room discourse. And, and over the course of that meal, Jesus talked repeatedly and candidly about how the nature of the relationship the disciples had had with the Holy Spirit up to that point was about to change. And so he's talking to them about the Holy Spirit. And at one point he says to them, the Holy Spirit is someone you know. He's been with you, but he's about to come within you. And that promise gets fulfilled here as Jesus breathes on them and they receive the Spirit. You see, this was a new dimension into which they were entering in their relationship with God. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon certain individuals for for times or for specific tasks, but then he would depart from them. But now Jesus is saying the Spirit who dwelt with them is now coming to rest and abide in a permanent way within you. And it changed everything for them. You see, this was the, that, that moment where the Spirit took up residence in the disciples' hearts. And it was critical because Jesus is about to send them out. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so it was critical that they do that, not in their own strength, but that they walk now in the power of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, what was necessary for them is equally necessary for every one of us as God's kids. We need the the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the commission that God has placed on our lives. Somebody say amen. amen. And so Jesus breathes on them. And it's interesting that he would breathe on them to do this. Because in doing that, it was... It was, in, in a way, an echo of what God originally did with Adam there in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, I, I believe it's verse 7, the Bible talks about how God formed man from the dust of the earth. Think about that. And it sounds almost like a fairy tale until you realize through modern science and technology, we know that the same 90 elements that you find in the soil are the same 90 elements that make up a human body. It's the same stuff. You pick up a pile of dirt. You rub it through your fingers. That's you. You just you add a little water and, 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 and some blood and, and that you've got a human being. It's, we're basically walking dirt clods. <laughs> so don't get a big head. I, I love that, you know. And yet, it says, after God formed Adam from the dust of the earth, he breathed into his nostrils. And that's what caused him to become a living being. And so Jesus is recreating that motif here. And, and, and what caused Adam to come alive originally, it's the spirit of a person. That's the real you. This is just, a bo- your body is just a, a, a house the, to, 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 to hold the real you, which is your spirit. And that came into to Adam through the breath of God. And so Jesus reenacts that here. And he breathes on the disciples and they receive new life. But then we come to verse 24 and we find that after all this happened, Thomas, one guy, one of the the 11 disciples that were left, remember Judas is out of the picture by now, one disciple was not there. He was gone. Now where was he? Well, we're not told. What we do know is that he had just witnessed his Lord, whom he loved, this man in whom he had placed all his hopes and pinned all his dreams 
He had watched him be betrayed and arrested and tried and convicted and ultimately get murdered on a cross. And who knows, maybe it was just all too much for him to handle. And we all process our grief in different ways. And and so maybe he's just like, guys, I just don't even care. I got to get out. I got to just spend some time on my own. Whatever his reasons were for being gone, I think we can all agree on this. Boy, did he pick the wrong time to step away. I mean, Jesus showed up when Thomas was gone. Now, when he did return, you have to know that all the other other disciples were letting him hear about it. Oh, boy, did you miss out. You'll never guess who was just here. Now, I have to mention this. I think it's noteworthy that it was when Thomas removed himself from fellowship that he ended up missing out on the Lord's presence. You know, there are those times when you're struggling when your hopes have been crushed and things haven't played out the way that you had anticipated or planned or dreamed that they would. And, and it's in those times that we tend to want to remove ourselves from fellowship and we isolate ourselves. But listen to this. You may even want to write this down. Distance can become a breeding ground for doubt. Distance can become a breeding ground for doubt. You see, when we distance ourselves from God and from other believers, what we do is we essentially remove our best chance for encountering the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that Thomas stopped being a disciple or anything like that. That's nonsense. What it means is that he missed out on something amazing that happened because he wasn't in the room. Something that happens in the room when God's people gather together with the express intent and purpose of seeking the Lord. You don't have to come to this building to be a Christian. And I've talked to people over the years. They say, I don't know, pastor. Church just isn't my thing. I believe in God, but I would rather worship on the golf course or I'd rather worship while I'm surfing or something like that. And that's just where I commune with the Lord. And I get that. And I love those things, by the way. Nothing wrong with golfing or surfing, but, but there is something to be said for what happens in a gathering like this where you come together with other believers and you worship the Lord and you open the word. In Hebrews 10.25, we read these words, and I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. It's in your notes. Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. When we gather like this, we encourage one another. And I'm encouraged by your faith. I get around other believers and my faith might be flagging, but I see you and I can, you know, you don't have any faith of your own. You can borrow some of mine. And some days I need to borrow some of your faith. And so we draw encouragement from the gathering of the body and we're reminded of the brevity of life and the soon return of the Lord. And so for all those reasons and more, it's it's great to gather like this. That's not to put down our online community or, or what the Lord does. And there are reasons and times when you have to be removed. And so I'm thankful for all the various channels and outlets that we have for taking in and consuming content, Bible studies and praise and worship music. I utilize all of them. But again, I'm just trying to highlight the, essential, the essentiality of, of gathering with other believers to seek the Lord. You know, Psalm 133 says that when God finds believers gathered together in unity, he commands a blessing in that place. Life flows. The spirit is welcome and and it flows like oil in the place where God finds believers gathered together in unity. That's Psalm 
133. Psalm 22 talks about the fact that God inhabits the praises of his people. You ever walked into a room where, where Christians are gathered and they're worshiping and you just sense like the atmosphere shifts the moment you enter that space? It's because God himself has come down from heaven and he's found a home within the praises of his people. It, it creates a bed, if you will, or an atmosphere that is conducive to the Lord moving and working and speaking. And then Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 18, wherever two or more gather in my name, my name, there I am in the midst. So the takeaway for us is, hey, don't miss church or you might miss out. <laughs> Thomas found that out the hard way. When he did show up, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nails in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. Here's where he expresses his doubts. And this is how he earned his nickname. And because of what he said here, preachers like me have been piling on Thomas for the last 2,000 years. But maybe instead of ridiculing him, we should actually be applauding him. And here's why. He actually had the guts to be honest about his doubts. You see, many of us struggle with, with times of doubt, just like Thomas did. And, and what I want to do is I want to walk through his story to see how he overcame his doubts, because it's going to create a template for you and how you can overcome your own. And the very first step is this. If you want to overcome your doubts, first, you need to admit that you have them. You can jot that down. That's the first fill in the blank in your study outline. Admit that you have them. I should say this, doubting is not a sin. Just because you're struggling with doubt, that doesn't disqualify you from deep being a disciple. It doesn't relegate you to second class status. I love what Dr. Oswald Sanders said on this point, and I quote, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he's thinking. <laughs> I like that. Doubt is that process of Weeding through the, the facts and asking questions, it is a place of uncertainty. And it's actually, it's signific it signifies a, that you're humble, that you don't have all the answers. You're not acting like you know it all when you actually don't. It's asking honest questions and seeking real solutions. Now, in that way, it differs from unbelief. Unbelief is rooted in the will. Someone outlined the difference between doubt and unbelief like this. Doubt asks sincere questions, while unbelief refuses to hear the answers. Do you see the difference there? But in my experience, I found that far too many Christians suffer in silence because they're afraid to admit their struggles. I mean, some question maybe pops into your mind and you, you don't give voice to it because you're afraid and you immediately think, oh no, maybe I'm not a real Christian and if the people around me knew that I was struggling with, myth, with this, surely they would kick me out of the church. And that's certainly not the case. I mean, far better to wrestle with honest doubts than it is to walk in dishonest faith. In fact, when you comb through your Bible, you might be surprised to learn that Many of the heroes of our faith struggled through seasons where they questioned God, and maybe they didn't doubt his existence, but they might have doubted his justice, or they doubted his goodness, or they doubted his fairness. If you read through the Psalms, you'll find oftentimes the psalmist asking questions, God, why did you allow thus and so to happen? Or why do bad things keep happening to good people, and good things keep happening to bad people? 
Job was another guy who had questions for the Lord, and so did Solomon. And even David, one of the great heroes of our faith, he experienced times where he struggled with how the Lord was moving and, and working. And when you come to the New Testament, you, one of the prominent figures is John the Baptist, and he too struggled with about with doubt. <clears throat> you know, he found himself in prison, and he was at a real low point in his, his journey, and, and while he was there, things weren't playing out the way he had anticipated they would. He thought Jesus was going to come onto the scene and establish a kingdom just like everybody else, and when that didn't happen and he found himself in prison, he began to question. I mean, this is the same guy who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he was there at Jesus' baptism. He saw the dove come down, but even John, the man whom Jesus called the greatest man who had ever been born. And he said, are you the one that we're supposed to be looking for? Or should we be looking for someone else? And I share all of those stories to drive home this thought that you're not alone in your struggles and in your doubts. Nearly all of us go through those seasons where we struggle. And the important thing is that you're honest with, honest with those questions. It's not about whether or not you're going to have doubts. The real question is, where do you take them, and what do you do with them when they come? And what we learn from Thomas here is that our doubts don't have to destroy our faith. In fact, they can become a vehicle to greater faith, and that's what happened to Thomas. Look at verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So that, that was his favorite gre greeting. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side and stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the first step in overcoming your doubt is just admit that you have them. The second step is bring your doubts to Jesus. That's what Thomas models for us here. A whole week passes before Jesus shows up again. This would have been now eight days since the resurrection and that first Easter Sunday. I'm sure the other disciples spent those intervening days trying to convince Thomas that Jesus really did rise from the dead. They pointed to the evidence. They pleaded with him. They prayed over him, no doubt. But none of it worked. Thomas remained hardened in his stance. He was a skeptic. He needed to put his hands in the scars before he would believe. Now, what I love about his example here is that even though he was struggling, and even though he didn't yet believe, he hadn't crossed that threshold, where was he? He was in the company of the disciples. He chose to wrestle through his doubts in fellowship with the other believers instead of running away as he had done the previous instance when Jesus showed up. The first time Jesus came, where was Thomas? He was MIA, but he wanted to make sure that didn't happen again. And so he was determined, I'm sticking in this room. So if Jesus shows up, I'm going to be the first one to see him. And I think that deserves some credit. But if Thomas deserves some credit for sticking around and continuing to show up despite his doubts, then we also have to give some credit to the disciples. Why? Because they provided a safe place for him to bring those questions and wrestle with those doubts. And by the way, on that point, 
I pray that our church becomes that kind of environment. This is not a church for perfect people. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all of your theological T's crossed and I's dotted before you walk through those doors. In fact, you know, I'm halfway tempted to put a sign on the front of our church that says, skeptics and doubters, welcome. We want you here. I love this verse. This is in Jude verse 22. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. Show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. That's the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of pastor I want to be. We're not going to condemn you or call you a heretic. You don't need to, you know, just have perfect faith to come here. We're going to show you mercy. And you, you notice when, when Jesus approaches Thomas, he doesn't rebuke him or chide him or ridicule him. No, no, no. Instead, he finds this disciple who's struggling and he moves towards him in tenderness and he provides him with what he needs to cross that line, as it were, and to draw out his faith. By the way, this is always the way that Jesus treated people who were struggling with their faith. My favorite example of this happens in Mark's gospel. And there's a story about this father whose son was being tormented by a demon and he had self-destructive tendencies. And so he brought his son to the disciples and asked them to pray over him and and see if they could drive out the demon, but they couldn't. And and so in desperation, imagine you're that parent and you see your child suffering and this dad is desperate. He doesn't know what to do. He's, He's exhausted all other avenues. And so he brings his son now to Jesus. And here's what he says to Jesus. In Mark 14, he says, if you can do anything, have pity on us. And Jesus responds, if I can. (laughs) He's seeking here to draw out the man's faith. He says to him, all things are possible for the one who believes. And here's what the dad said in response. I believe, but help my unbelief. And that is to me one of the most genuine and honest and powerful prayers that any Christian can pray. Instead of allowing this mixture that he knew resided in his heart to keep him from away from Jesus and keep him from running to Jesus, he just brought this tangled web of inconsistencies before the Lord and he just laid it all out there and he starts with the little bit of faith that he had and he says, I know it's not much and I know it's flawed, and I know it's not perfect, and I know it's not polished, but I'll give you what I've got. I believe, but I also doubt. Anybody resonate with that prayer? (laughs) Or is it just me? So much of me is just like that father where I have faith, but I'm also crippled by fears. Some days I'm filled with holy anticipation, and others I'm consumed by crippling anxiety. I love the Lord with all of my heart, but I also recognize I have a heart that's prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Just like Thomas, just like the man in Mark 14, I'm full of paradoxes. And I don't know that I'm ever fully in one world or the other. Most days, I'm a little bit of both. And that is, to me, an invitation to come to the Lord. You know, sometimes people tell me, I've just got to figure out my stuff before I really get involved in your church or before I start serving or before I start coming. I just need to figure it out on my own. And and that's not the right attitude to have. The right way to do it is just, just bring your faith, 
with all of its loose threads and all of its broken pieces, and you just bring it to Jesus and then watch him take your crumble of faith. He says, with a seed, a, a, a faith the size of a mustard seed, I can move mountains. So it's not the greatness of your faith, but rather the greatness of your God. Somebody say amen. amen. No matter how weak or frail you think your faith is, it's enough to get started. So you admit your doubts, then you bring your doubts to the Lord. And then thirdly and finally, we'll conclude with this. You've got to choose to believe. When Jesus invites Thomas to touch his scars, he's presenting him with the evidence that he said he needed before he would believe. Did you note that? Thomas said, unless I touch him, I'm not going to believe. Now, what's interesting is as John relays the story to us, we don't read about Thomas actually reaching out and touching Jesus' scars. It was almost as though he didn't need the evidence anymore. And here's what I love. It wasn't some perfectly crafted explanation of things that won Thomas, nor was it some compelling evidence that proved to Thomas that Jesus had risen. At the end of the day, it was just a personal revelation. Jesus showed up and Thomas fell to his knees and he worshiped. I like how Jesus challenges Thomas's to put away his doubts and choose to believe. It's a, it's a good reminder to all of us that, yes, there is an element by which we are called upon to exercise our faith. And you might be tempted to think, well, sure, if I got the same experience that Thomas had and I saw the risen Lord and he extended his arms and said, reach out and put your hands on the scars, I would believe too. But notice what Jesus goes on to say. Hey, blessed are you because you've seen and believed, but how much more blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe? You've weighed the evidence. You've considered the clues and the facts. You've wrestled in your heart. But at the end of the day, it's not just going to be some, I could, I could provide a mountain of evidence for you, but that's not what's going to do it. What you really need is what Thomas needed. It's not an explanation that the kids of the Lord live by, but rather it's divine revelation. That's what we need. You need Jesus to show up. And that's going to require faith. You know, it's not just Christians who need faith to live. We all exercise faith. And and we all have to cross that threshold of belief. It's not just Christians. Atheists have to exercise faith too. Did you know that? And you wonder if they ever wrestle with their belief system that they've built their life upon. But they have to exercise faith that everything came from nothing, that life came from non-life, that intelligence came from non-intelligence. If you ask me, the atheist has to go a lot further. And there's a lot more compelling evidence on our side that there is a God and the God of the Bible, but at the end of the day, we have to choose to believe, which is right where Thomas, or the Lord leaves things with Thomas. Now, my question is, why do we always lean towards doubting our beliefs and believing our doubts? What we need to learn how to do is believe our beliefs and doubt our doubts. Maybe it's time you start doubting your doubts. <laughs> you know, I love the way that the Proverbs puts it. Let's read this out loud. This is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. You know, doubt comes from this place of putting more credence in my own understanding of things than I do on the Lord. I put more weight on my own understanding of 
the future or circumstances or evidence or I put more weight on my feelings than I do on the fact of what God has said. And so this verse is an invitation for us to just choose to believe, to choose to trust. And that is the question that the Lord is asking you today. Are you willing to trust me? And he's given you a lot of evidence that would prove his trustworthiness. You see, the enemy wants to take your doubts and destroy your faith. However, the Lord wants to use your doubts to bring about a deeper faith. That's what happened ultimately with Thomas. When he says, my Lord and my God, his statement is both personal and theological. This is one of the strongest statements concerning the deity of Christ that you will find anywhere in your Bible. Thomas doesn't just call him my Lord, which he does. He starts there, but he goes on to say my God. He doesn't call him rabbi. He doesn't call him teacher. He says, you are God. And Jesus receives his worship, which is a strong claim to deity on Jesus' part. And Thomas crossed that line. He becomes a believer and he never looks back. You know, church history records how Thomas's story goes from here and and, and church historians tell us that eventually Thomas took the gospel all the way to India. And there he preached the gospel and, and shared his faith. And, and the, the wife of a prominent leader, a Hindu region, in a Hindu region, became a believer. And, and so he threatened Thomas with, with death if he didn't recant his story, you know, and, and if he didn't recant his faith. And Thomas refused to do that. And so this man took a spear and he thrust it into Thomas' side. And Thomas bled out and died. And it was a sad ending. But in another way, it was apropos. It was, it was fitting that the man who initially said, I'm not going to believe until I can reach out and touch his side, would himself become a martyr for the faith because of his unwillingness to recant, because he was so bold in his belief, and he died in the same way that his Lord had. It shows how far he came. Thomas the doubter became Thomas the believer. And when did it happen? It happened after he had a personal encounter with the risen Lord. And here's why I'm so excited for a study like this. I I don't have to just convince you by weighing the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead because there is a very real risen Lord who is here in this room and he wants to reveal himself to you today. He's inviting you to, to through eyes of faith, see him and know that he loves you, that he's for you. That he's been with you every step of the way. That he's walked with you through the trials of your life. And, and maybe you've been hurt just like Thomas had been. Maybe some things didn't play out the way you wanted them to. And I didn't ever see my life going this way. And I didn't know that I was going to be here at this point in my life. And, and my hopes have been crushed. And my dreams have been dashed. And, and I don't know where I land with all of this. And I, I thought I had faith, but maybe I don't. And, and today, I believe by faith that the risen Lord is going to walk into this room and he's going to say to you, don't be doubting anymore, but believe me, I'm with you and I'm for you and I love you. And what proves that? The scars. He says, I died for you. 
And God would say to you through his word, if, if he didn't spare his own son, but he freely gave him up, how much more is he going to take care of all the other needs in your life? He's just asking you to cross that barrier, cross that threshold, and choose to lean in. Maybe you're a tangled web of inconsistencies. Maybe your faith is weak. Maybe it's fractured. Maybe it's frail. You just bring what you got. You say, Lord, I believe, but I'm going to be honest. I got some doubts, but I'm here. And I'm willing to wrestle through those things. I'm, really, I'm willing to wade into the waters. I'm really willing to, to grapple with the issues and, and come away with the conclusions. And I just know, Lord, that you're going to show up. And if you'll come with that attitude, I guarantee you, Jesus will reveal himself to you. Can we pray together? Thank you, Lord, for this time and this gathering of your people. It's always a sacred time whenever we get together like this, Lord. We know you're going to move. We know you're going to speak. We know there's going to be a moment. And, and it wasn't right away. But as they gathered, as they continued in fellowship, suddenly you appeared. And you proved that you had been there before. It's not like you weren't there when they couldn't see you. That's why you were able to say, hey, Thomas, you said you wanted to see the scars. You were proving to them that you had been there all along. And, and so too in your life, just because you can't see the Lord doesn't mean that he hasn't been with you every step of the way. And he's walking towards you right now. And he's asking you to exercise faith. For whatever reason, God in his sovereignty has chosen that in this season of eternity, which eternity is a long time. This is just a blip on the map. He needs you and I to develop the muscle called faith. And I pray, Lord, that in this moment, faith would arise, that doubts would give way to belief. Lord, that our questions, whether or not we get the explanations we want, Lord, that in light of the revelation of your glory, the manifest presence of God, something would happen in the room that would melt away our fears, that would do away with our doubts. Lord Jesus, we invite you into this space. We recognize your presence. We hallow your name. We worship you, Jesus. We don't always get it. We don't always understand and we don't always comprehend, but we choose right now to exercise faith, to believe that you're a good God who does good things in the life of his kids and that you're working together all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes, Lord. We choose to walk by faith, not by sight. We don't cast our eyes on that which is temporal, but on the things that are unseen. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I love that. He's the author of your faith. He's the one who gave you the faith to believe, and he's the one who's going to see your faith too, through to its final conclusion. He will get you to that finish line. You just keep showing up. Up. You keep showing up. You keep showing up and you watch God work. You watch him move. You watch him show up in the room. And Jesus, we love you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.